1: We are first genners episode 21. I can't believe we're already to episode 21. Where's the time gone? I don't know, but I'm kind of excited that the time has uh, finally arrived at deer season. Yes, that's right, today, October 1. I know Brandon's been hunting since September, but I can officially get out and start hunting deer today. I can't go though because uh, my wife has to work and I got to watch the kids. That's okay, my kids are cool. So, today's episode is going to be an interview with Mr. Chase Burns. Chase is a, not only an avid deer hunter, but he is a land management specialist. And he's going to educate us on how to maximize and how to hunt strategically on a small property. So we'll define what we mean by a small property during the show, but this is one you do not want to miss. You're going to learn so much just by tuning in and listening to Chase. Now, a little bit of a a fair warning here. Um, We had some technical difficulties while recording this. I did my absolute best to get it as cleaned up within reason, Um, but there's some some audio issues about more prevalent halfway into the show and then into the back end i really did my best to try and get it cleaned up because not only do i strive to have the best quality content i can get for you but i also want it to be a quality audio experience for you as well so my apologies for that um, but please stick around the content from chase today is fantastic so strap in take notes and get ready to listen to episode 21 of the first gen hunter podcast with mr chase burns Hey, Brandon, we have some uh, big news for everybody. As of the day this drops, something has been live and on the internet for, I don't know, maybe uh, 12 hours or so. Maybe not even yeah. that. We, we've we been working on a special project for our uh, listeners. Um, mm-hmm. I, we we uh, compiled kind of a montage of all the uh, deer hunting experts we've had on the show so yes. far.
0: Well, and it's and it's exciting too because you know putting this montage together is really geared to be a kickoff, you know, a pep talk to the start of the season, and you know it's it's cool because a lot of different perspectives coming at at you know the the listeners, which is going to be great. Um, Some tips, some advice, you know, just as we go into the season, and you know, just excited to be able to, you know, especially for the the Midwesterners. You know, I hear in Delaware we've been. You know, doing it now for about a month. So, you know, but but even even then, you know, September, you know, is great. But, you know, you look forward to getting into October and uh, just really getting the season underway in that exciting time of the year. So we're just pumped and ready to celebrate with everyone as they start to just make memories, have success. So, I mean, we're just ramped up about it.
1: For sure, it's it. it was a, it was a lot of fun to put the video together, and man, just the the good quality last minute tips that are in that video. So make mm-hmm. sure make sure you head over to the First Gen Hunter YouTube channel to check out that that uh, little uh, kickoff film for you. And uh, tonight we have a extra special guest. We're really happy to have Chase Burns on the show. Chase is a guy who lives whitetails and when we describe what exactly chase does for his his uh nine to five i guess you can't really call it nine to five unless you're talking like maybe uh nine in the morning till or nine at night till five in the morning and then he gets maybe a few hours of sleep and then he's back on the road helping people Mm -mm. fulfill Mm -hmm. their their uh whitetail dreams
2: (laughs) <laughs> Chase
1: is Chase is what I what you would call a man of many hats. He uh uh is a wildlife biologist by training, I believe, right? When you were uh in your college years, Chase. True. Yep. True. He, yep. And uh he uh is now a I guess we could call it a recreational property. A realtor or real estate agent, um, although I'm sure that's not the only kind of properties he uh, that slide across his desk. But he definitely um, uh, works in a in a world where he finds clients looking for quality hunting ground, and it's not just whitetails. Of course, you know a lot of times that blends over to. Turkeys and and even uh, in some cases some good fishing opportunities and um, he really helps people fulfill their dreams in that way and then on top of that he takes these properties and he looks at what their potential is and um, he helps his clients reach that potential by um, managing the property for them or at least giving them a plan and. And helping them get that work accomplished to maximize their property for for um i guess you could say maybe maximum deer output and uh beyond that though he's an avid deer hunter and most importantly he's a family man chase thank you mm. for taking time out <laughs> of your busy schedule man it's just crazy listing all that stuff off <laughs> but
3: <laughs> yeah yeah I, I really appreciate you having me on and i know my schedule's kind of uh crazy especially as we amp up and get ready for hunting season you, know, you guys are trying huh. everybody is trying to cram a lot into every day right and our days are getting yep. in order so yep. just, it's it's a, a hustle nonstop, like you said and then trying to get all that stuff done so that you can free yourself huh. up to make sure that you're not totally abandoning your wife and your children
1: <laughs> yeah. and yes you yes right
3: to, to wear that hat is dad and husband you're off the clock so
1: yes right yeah
3: i'm I'm happy to be on. Um, uh, I'm excited about your program. I think what you guys are doing is awesome, and uh, hope whatever I'm able to offer is gonna be helpful uh, to some first gen hunters and other people who are taking this in and and uh, I mean, you know, I I can share whatever about my experience, but really what you, what you need to hear or what you want to hear, I suppose, I don't want to drill on too much more than what you gave me a really generous introduction.
2: (laughs) (laughs) If there's other
3: questions that come up with that, I mean, yeah, that's how I pay the bills. I'm on this program because I'm super passionate about conservation, about wildlife management. Um, I, probably one of the funnest parts of my job and you're right. I mean, only, I want to say probably about a third of what I sell in real estate, I specialize in land. So it's all land and rural properties, but only probably about a third of it is actually like hunting properties. You know, properties sure. that are primarily timbered or uh, heavily recreational in use. And they might have some uh, tillable income or might have some CRP and they might have a, a home or a lodge or something like that on it. But the pieces that people are buying to live out their, their hunting and their outdoor aspirations and build family memories on stuff. That's probably about a third of what I actually sell in real estate. But that's honestly, those are, those usually are the most fun.
2: You know, those are the
3: pieces that, um, that got me into land. You know, when I bought my Mm -hmm. first farm, it was a huge goal of mine. I had no idea how I was going to get there. And so I lived that out. Like every day trying to squirrel away money and eat my peanut butter and jelly sandwiches instead of going out to lunch and doing all this and stuff, you know, that working all the extra hours I could get and doing the things that people do to, um, you know, squirrel away some money and be able to buy a a piece of real estate. And I've been there and lived that out and I know how tough it is. So when I get to work with people, clients who are, this is their first time land purchase and Mm. I get to help them figure out what, what their needs are um, and a lot of times they'll tell me, you know, this is what I want, but once I really get to know them well or know their family and understand what, what they really want out of a property, you know, a lot of times the ideal property is not exactly, if they would have picked one out and said, here, this is it, this is the one, it's usually not, you
2: know, right. yeah. it's usually yeah. not
3: the one that it actually right. means. Right. And uh, it's kind of like car shopping, you know, you gravitate towards something that looks cool or the, this or that, but is it practical? Is it actually what you need? You know, I mean, you probably don't need to be uh, buying a Camaro when you got three kids to haul around everywhere. You know, <laughs> it's like find, Finding a property that is attractive to them, but also meets all their needs, you know? Um, but when yeah. they actually close on it and then you get to follow up with them and, you know, I have people now I've been selling for enough years that I've helped some of them grow into a bigger farm and they sold the first one with me and then had, you know, had my help to buy another bigger farm somewhere else or, or they figure out after hunting it for two or three years, this was just too far from home. I need to find something that's closer to home, and you know, so moving around like that as they as they grow and their families grow, and they get more experienced, it's been like I, I can't even explain how rewarding that is. It's so cool
2: yeah, to be involved
3: in that with people who are starting at zero. You know, as far as like I have no land, my family doesn't own any land. You know, I learned to hunt as a kid, but now I don't have any place to go, and I want to. I want my kids to grow up having a place to go. You know, right? And then being able to help them walk that out is awesome.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. That's that is really cool. And when you think of, I mean, when you just think about buying land, you know, and you're a you're an average guy, kind of like what you described there, eating the peanut butter and jellies mm-hmm. instead of going out to lunch, you know. It's it's a daunting thing to look at. I mean, though you see the you see the price tags on on a decent piece of of hunting ground and you you know, you're right. That's that's something that probably seems out of reach for a lot of people, but coming in rubbing yeah. rubbing shoulders with a guy like you is is where people need to go. They need to they need to seek out someone like Chase who specializes um in, in acquiring properties like that and somebody who's actually done it themselves you know there's so much value to that having having somebody who can kind of lead you along who's who's uh walked that road before so to speak so i think that that there's there's a lot of value there um we, we should say we should we should also bring up what um Chase's businesses so that listeners can, uh, follow along and you will definitely want to, because one of my favorite things to, uh, to, uh, come across when I'm, uh, mindlessly cruising Facebook on occasion, although those days are pretty much, uh, gone now that I, <laughs> now that I'm wearing a few hats myself, but, but, um, <laughs> I love coming across Chase's, uh, postings for new farms for sale. I mean, they get like the drone photo, fo- uh, the, mm-hmm. the drone film going they got trail cam yep. pictures of these giant bucks and and uh it's it is fun to get on chase's uh land guys page can you give them the official title to that page chase so that people can track that down
3: sure yeah so i've got a, a facebook page it's uh, uh chase burns illinois land guys broker um you can pull up you know if you just search chase burns and land guys on facebook you're going to find it but uh you know that's that's kind of my personal land guys page land guys is a company that uh you know i have a managing broker's license um and, and an auctioneer but i i choose to work with land guys because they're an awesome team a uh, group of guys that i got to become friends with before i really even got into the business and uh, you know finally ultimately ended up on board with them and um, they've built an amazing platform just really do a fantastic job showcasing properties and, you know, and they're really cool guys to work with all kind of like us, you know, some of them are farm boys, some of them aren't, but uh, you know, they're all from different walks of life. Some of them are teachers, some were biologists, some are farmers, um, some were just marketers. And, you know, but we all were drawn to it because we love land and because we love hunting and fishing and um, farming and livestock and all those types of things that, you know, the uh, recreational or rural lifestyle and, you know, just, uh land guys has kind of keyed in on that rural living overall as being a niche and so when i say like it's not just hunting it is you know we, we certainly draw a lot of hunters and people who are we know how to market hunting properties but um we do a lot with the agricultural stuff too farming and um livestock hog facilities i mean we, we sold all that type of stuff grain facilities and uh we also sell just a lot of homes on acreage to people who just want to get out of town and want to, you know, they just want to be rural and they want to hear the turkeys gobble at night when the sun sets and they want to, you know, but they, you know, maybe they're it's their first step out of the city. And so they don't have, you know, the cash to buy a 40 acre piece of ground or you know, whatever, but they just, they want to get out and just get a taste of that, you know, and kind of be surrounded by it. And we can all appreciate that, but Mm -hmm.
2: uh,
3: you know, it's you know, being in an atmosphere where they get to at least see wildlife and things like that. But
2: there's sure. a lot
3: that even those people can do with their properties. or I have sold a lot of properties that were like a house on ten or less acres and the guy's like, I know this will never be a hunting property and I'm like, Well,
2: you know, I wouldn't say never,
3: but he's like, But what could I do that like my kids could be sitting at the breakfast table looking out the window and see some deer?
2: Mm-hmm, and so, yeah. You
3: know, we'll come up with ideas. It's like, Well, you know, you can if, if you only got five acres or 10 acres or whatever, you can micromanage that and create uh, a little ecosystem, you know, and, and put something there that is otherwise missing from the grander puzzle and attract wildlife to your little chunk. So those are things that like, if somebody, you know, is hunting by permission and their neighbor down the road has got 12 acres that they let them hunt on, but maybe they let them, you know, do something there that, you know, will help make it more attractive. There's, there's uh you know from a biological standpoint we can only impact the acres that we've got control over so we're always trying to look at what we can do with what we have and make it the best that it can be whether that's your yard you know that you're trying to bring some wildlife out to just so you can see them or whether it's a small piece of property that somebody's letting you hunt or whatever
1: yeah yeah, that's a that's a great way to put it. Yeah, so definitely uh check out Chase's page there for land guys and then also Chase has another page, Dogwood Land Management. And I'll put links to these in the show notes so that people if they want to um find their way to those pages, definitely uh check those out and I appreciate that. Yeah, for sure. And and uh it's it's just good stuff. And on occasion too uh Chase will post some uh really cool like helpful tips for managing your own property on his uh, dogwood page and those are those are fun to to follow along with as well educational and uh, you know you're getting good information there too (laughs) and that's kind of the first thing that we want to start with tonight let's um the kind of the theme that we're hitting tonight and this is something that chase has personally specialized in he he mentioned just a few minutes ago about how he purchased his own property and i guess it was about oh two years ago now chase had this uh really this really generous get together with a bunch of guys he knows like to hunt and who are or were at least interested in learning more about about what it was he did for a living and so he brought oh I don't know maybe was it thirty or forty of us out there Chase that ended up making it out there yeah,
3: I think so I, yeah somewhere around forty thirty five forty people
1: yeah it was a great it was a great group of guys and Chase just kind of took us through his property and here's how generous he was this was like this time of year right now. <laughs> Mm, right, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right before hunting uh, I, season. I, I
3: won't lie; I I might have had second thoughts about it about a week ahead of time. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> what, what did I do? Because I was getting some really good deer on trail camera that year too. Mm. I, I had a mm-hmm. couple of beautiful mature deer showing up pretty regularly, and I'm like. <laughs> I'm like Days before the season opens, and I'm dragging forty people <laughs> through my property. Yeah,
2: you know, but, yeah. but I, you know,
3: I I went into planning that event. Uh, I just I had to keep reminding myself, you know, what my motives were, and that it, it just wasn't about me. You know, right.
2: it was,
3: mm. Um, you know, about sharing God's glory for one thing with yeah. people, and and introducing people to them. and you know. And then I had some friends who were big time hunters that weren't, you know, didn't were maybe let's say either new in their faith or didn't, you know, have, uh, too much exposure to that. And then I had a lot of guys there that, uh, that I know through, you know, through church related things and whatever, who also kind of share our passion for outdoors. And I'm like, I'm just trying to get these guys to intermingle, you know,
2: right, yeah. trying to,
3: uh, foster interest in the outdoors and in hunting in some of these people who are just good Christian men. And then, also hoping that maybe some of that Christian stuff will rub off on some of the guys. You're right. Yeah. <laughs> <That's good stuff. laughs> yeah. Yeah. But right. It, it was a, a lot of fun. And I, uh, you know, I really regret that we didn't, uh, get something like that pulled together again this year but it's
1: definitely something i want to do again in the future yeah yeah well definitely give me another uh, invite because i'll be uh the first one mm-hmm. to rsvp to that. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that that was that was a lot of th- fun yeah. you know the thought did cross my mind though i was like you know what maybe chase is kind of working on like a uh like a uh doctoral uh thesis uh project here or something like that. Uh and he's trying to figure out if you drag forty guys through your timber right before hunting season, does that kinda <laughs> does that kinda like numb the deer senses towards like uh you know smelling people in the woods are like, Yeah, it's just that band of forty guys out here <laughs> It was an experiment, but I don't know, <laughs> I don't know trying to tame the deer thing. out there. <laughs> no, Yeah, what? Yeah.
0: I mean, it's it's pretty cool to be able to give back to, you know, because we talk about the mentorship and, you know, Kent and I can also relate, you know, from the Christian perspective and, you know, wanting to use, you know, the, the opportunities that we have to glorify the Lord and, mm-hmm. you know, to just reach out to people. And, you know, it's a, it's exciting to to see that interest level and see how the Lord will use opportunities like that. And so it's pretty cool to just be able to mentor people and and help them, you know, grow in their love for the lord but you know also the love for the outdoors and seeing them get into that and seeing that, you know, that love being born into someone, man, that's that's just exciting. Very.
2: very yep. Very good.
1: Yep, for sure. Well, Chase, let's let's uh start here with so you own a uh, property, if I remember correctly, it's right around is it 50 acres? Is that the the property you are? 55? Yep. Yep. So right Mm -hmm. in the window here of what we're talking, we're talking about hunting and even managing properties that are in this sub 100 acre range, you know. Um, I shouldn't promise too much here because I don't know if I'll be able to find the right guys down the road, but I would kind of like to step this up, you know, do it kind of a almost a spread out series here on, on, uh, you know, hunting a small property, hunting a, you know, you know, moderate sized property and then hunting a large piece of property. But, uh, I think Mm -hmm. this is probably the one that's going to apply to most guys. Um, that just, uh, either they own their own small piece or their family does, or they know somebody that lets them hunt a smaller farm. Mm -hmm. And so let's go ahead and start here with somebody's maybe got, they've been, they've been saving money and they're looking to, uh, purchase a property. And it's in this, you know, this sub 100 acre uh, size range. And let's just kind of talk about what they should be looking for. And so I thought maybe the first place to start would be, what are some things that money can't buy that people maybe aren't aware of?
3: Man, that is like the the perfect question uh, that Mm. most people never think of. So like, my farm, for instance, uh, is fifty five acre piece that uh, you you can, with enough time and sweat equity or equipment or maybe a little money or whatever, you can change almost everything about a farm except topography. Hmm. You can't change how it lays, which way it lays. I mean, the way god the way that God smacked it on the earth, is is pretty much how it's always going to be you could have you could could clear it and make it not timber you could have ground that is open and you could plant all trees on it and with enough time you can change a whole lot about how a piece of ground looks and the type of cover that it offers and all that sort of stuff but my farm is primarily north-facing slopes and if i could change anything about my farm it would be to make it a mirror image and throw it on the other side of the creek mm-hmm. that we are overlooking sure. and have south-facing slopes. But, yeah, this is the one thing I'll never be able to change. <laughs> so if, if, I'm, if I'm looking for, uh, you know, a, a piece of property to hunt on, if my goal is to, let's say, my personal goal, being a hunter that's, you know, been at it a long time I and mean, I grew up, you know, in a deer stand more or less. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've, I've had plenty of opportunity to harvest deer and I, I enjoyed being out there and seeing deer and letting deer walk just as much as I enjoy shooting one. I mean, I, that's hard to believe, but it really is true. That, yep. Sure. That shooting one is, is pretty far down my priority list, but when I do draw my bow back or settle my sights on a deer it's going to be one that's pretty special. It mm-hmm. to me that, you know, I know I've been watching that one for a while or hoping to encounter this deer or that or whatever. It's one that, you know, Yeah, I, I guess you, after a while each hunter progresses and, and it isn't necessarily mm-hmm. a trophy thing. It's just the, like I don't have to shoot every deer I see at this
1: point. Right. Yeah. Right.
3: So, you know, when I get ready to shoot one, it's going to be one that either really excites me or means a lot to me. Right. Um, if that's your goal as a hunter and you're looking for a piece of property that you can – you know set the bar kind of high and that you're really hoping to harvest that upper age class of white tail or whatever uh-huh. then you know you're going to look for the the attributes that mature whitetail are attracted to obviously which is mostly seclusion a piece that sits away from enough activity or away from other hunting pressure enough uh disturbance off of the road or far enough away from whatever the, the, their priority as the deer gets older and more mature is uh, it, it, everything shifts towards survival. It, it's a lot less about making my mark and you know raking every scrape that's out there in the woods, chasing yeah. all the does and whatever, or having even having the highest quality food sources. They gravitate more towards seclusion. I wouldn't be left alone as long as nobody bumps me out of here mm. and if things are really private and I feel safe here all the time, that's where they go. So yeah. you, you kind of, as you're scouting for properties, it's nice to see these drone images and nice to see some big deer on trail camera and all those things that we use in marketing. But really once you figure out like, Oh, there's obviously big deer on this farm. I mean, look at that video. Well, so you pull up, pull up Google earth or whatever, uh, web app or website you want to use if you sure. want to, you know, whether it's Onyx hunt or hunt stand or whatever your satellite imagery and back out to a 20,000 foot elevation and back out to a point where you can see, you know, two, three square miles, at least, and take a look at what's there. What does that area offer? And then gradually kind of zoom your way back in and say, what does this property have or what can it have that uh, there's not much of in the surrounding area? You're, you're trying to stand out in your neighborhood. right? And you guys know, you might know, or some people who hear here, this might know who Grant Woods is. And, you know, and I don't, you know, I, I've, I've become friends with a lot of wildlife biologists and people who are really i guess big in the the deer world sure but, um a couple of them have you know it, you, you can't you can't be in consulting or do you know a lot of this stuff um for very long without eventually hearing yourself regurgitate something that somebody else has said. <laughs> right <laughs> yeah, right. Like, yeah. Oh, that's like you know plagiarism only you know it's just like so if, if it's coming out of my mouth i better get somebody well i first heard this from this guy but it's
1: true yep. you know yep.
3: so so grant woods is kind of uh you know, guys who do this a lot know that this is something Grant would say. He would say, your property doesn't need to be, like, the best habitat in the world. It just needs to be a little bit better than all of your neighbors.
0: Mm. Right. I mean, yeah.
3: it's, it, you because the deer is not familiar with the, the highest quality habitat in the world, they only know what exists on this planet within a couple of square miles of where they live. Yeah. So That's a good point. If right.
1: That's a really good your Property
3: stands out in the neighborhood. It does you know, your guy your buddy ten miles down the road might have the best food plots in the world and the most awesome patch of switchgrass and stand of pines and the better, you know, managed timber than you're ever gonna have and all that sort of stuff. But his deer are never gonna be your deer and your deer are never gonna be his deer. So it's irrelevant. You know, you're not yeah. competing with him. You you really only have to worry about the deer who are in your neighborhood, your local herd that you can impact what habitat you've got in a positive way and give them more reason to be attracted to your 10 acres or 50 acres or whatever, than all the other properties that touch it.
1: Sure. So yeah,
0: great, great point. I
3: could could go on a really long winded spiel about that, but suffice to say that uh, what I summarize it, I guess by saying that if we're looking at properties, you see enough imagery about something that, that excites you, I would go immediately to Google Earth or go to, you know, I'm, I'm on map right, right now looking at my farm and pull up something that lets you zoom out just far enough that you can kind of look at it and say, what is it about this property that's going to offer something that the surrounding area doesn't have? Or uh, are all the deer going to be bedded over on this guy and I'm never going to be able to outcompete that or make my habitat good enough that I'm going to draw some of the, you know, the mature deer especially are going to gravitate towards my property. Or what can I do, you know, does the area even have the capacity to have much of a deer herd? If my property right. is basically 50 acres, but it's an island of habitat and totally surrounded by open cropland, you know, it's pretty tough. I mean, you can have maybe some deer there, but your yeah. carrying capacity is going to be pretty low, you know, because we're talking yeah. about, when biologists talk about deer herds in terms of deer per square mile. A deer does not live on 50 acres. You can't make it you know? Right. Yeah. It it has to survive there and on all of the areas surrounding that, that property. So, you know, those are your limitations that you have to be aware of when you're shopping or looking at property. And if you're uh, if you find a piece that you think has lots of potential, then it's time to start, you can start looking deeper and figure out like, what is the condition of this property? Does it have good habitat? Does it have poor, does it have, is it loaded with invasive species or is it going to be a ton of work to, shape this up? Or is it just like a raw canvas that just needs, you know, a few things and it's going to really be amazing.
1: Those are all excellent. Those are all excellent points. Kind of on the the topic of your neighborhood. Um, is there something that if you see this is going on, on a neighbor's property, you, if you were the buyer, you would say, uh, uh-uh, no way. I don't care how good this farm looks. <laughs> because this is red going flags. on. Yeah. These red <laughs> flags from, yeah. so basically stuff that's out of your control, no matter how good you make yep. your property. What's, what's something on a neighboring piece that, that people should be like, eh, no thanks.
3: Yeah. Oh man. So the one that is the red flag for most of our buyers that like, if I, if I list a piece of property or somebody calls me and says, Hey, I want to go look at a few farms and I send them a few and they like one to go look at it. When we're walking up together for the first time, What normally is a red flag number one for buyers is when they see ladder stands sitting like right on the property lines, not Mm -hmm. on this property, but right across the property line. Nobody wants to buy a farm and end up with fence sitting neighbors immediately. Yeah, for for one thing, because maybe they're only shooting 160 class and better deer, and you know, and you don't you don't know that, but you always assume the worst. But the the bigger issue isn't even what they're shooting. It's where they're shooting it. And it's like, if they're literally hunting right on the property line, they're probably, you're probably going to have some uh, confrontation right right off the bat. And it's like, you always want to buy in an area where you can build good neighbor relationships immediately. And that's, you're not off to a good start. (laughs) The first time you meet the guy is probably going to be because, you know, he's got to retrieve a deer off of you or, or
0: he's <laughs> on your
3: side of the fence or, you know, something even yeah, like that. So yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, the, but anyway, that's, I mean, that's usually one thing that um, buyers notice as we're walking a property that's like, oh man, I don't like that. And like, eh, I don't blame you. You know, as a hunter, I wouldn't like that either. But, yeah. you know, I'm kind of like, well, let's, let's figure out who that guy is. I mean, you know, I, I usually, I have enough experience in it now that I know that, even sometimes those neighbors turn out to be really good people. And it yeah. was maybe a 14 year old kid that put that stand up and, you know, his granddad owns the farm and they just, you know, he'd let him do that. But, oh, he wished, he didn't know it was on the fence. Fa- I've, I've seen all that stuff play out before. So it's like, right. you kind of, uh, you kind of have to give grace a little bit on some of those things and say, okay, well let's, let's make note of that. But let's not, let's not cast this whole property aside because there's a tree stand on the fence line.
2: Right. So, right.
3: Usually then, you know, when we get a little deeper and we look at more of the farm, um, I'm looking for access, you know, and, and if there's sometimes, uh, you can have a great piece of hunting ground that has terrible access and it's hard to get around and there's just no good way to get in and out to either, even to hunt it, let alone to retrieve a deer or to get equipment through and, and manage a piece of property.
2: And that's, yeah. that's
3: not good, but you can fix that with money and time and some chainsaw work and you know skid steer or a dozer or whatever it takes but on the on the opposite side of that one thing that's kind of sometimes a red flag for me is when i go on a piece of property and there's way too much access like there are trails everywhere everywhere yeah and and yeah some people some sellers will call me in and say yeah let's go for a tour of the property we're getting ready to list with you and we'll hop on a gator or something and go for a tour you know or a range or whatever Touring the property and it's like, whoa, like there's trails every, everywhere that they could physically cut a trail. They made one. And yeah. the reason that's a red flag is like because they probably use them all the time. And yeah. people have been touring around, you know, and their kids yeah. and their grandkids and the kid down the street that's got a quad. Everybody, this is like the ATV park and everybody comes out and buzzes all over the property all the time. And it's it kind of, you know, becomes the the local uh, neighborhood ATV park. Right, yeah. It, you can, yeah. You can, it can have devastating results on property for one thing, but then even once you buy it and lock it down and say, eh, that's not going to happen anymore. Well, great, but there might still be somebody in the area who didn't get the memo and then you end up with trespass yeah. issues sometimes and things like that. So those are, that's a red flag for me if I'm a buyer.
2: Yeah. Um,
3: um, there's just, the other thing would be Probably uh, environmental, of course. I mean, there's all kinds of liability concerns as a buyer that somebody – if you're buying a piece of real estate, it's a huge investment. It also exposes you, unfortunately, in our litigious society we live in, to a, a lot of potential liability. You know, you've got a piece of real estate that people are going to want to hike on. They're going to want to come in and mushroom hunt and, you know, walk the dog or hunt or whatever. And a lot of those things you can say, no trespassing. You're not allowed to do that. You know, only the people I get permission to or whatever. Some people are still going to do it mm-hmm. You know, in certain yeah. cases and in certain neighborhoods, especially. But when when those things happen and say like you have there's a huge ditch that's kind of hidden, but really steep drop off. Somebody's going to end up in the dark some night driving an ATV into it somebody gets hurt really bad or killed or whatever, it, it's a, you know, I mean it, some things that when you see it as a buyer and you're walking a piece of property in the daylight and you see something, it's like, Whoa, like that's a nightmare waiting to happen. Yeah. Might want to steer away from some of those things. Like don't, don't buy yourself potential issues, you know, if
1: you can yeah, avoid it. That's a good way to put it. Yep. Yeah. Great yep. point. Definitely. Well, let's, uh let's keep moving here with, um, with looking at this property you know i think something that people probably also have a misconception with is is timing of things and some of these projects they can cost a lot of money in fact i remember um uh, at that event at out at your place a few years ago you uh took us by those apple trees that you have planted
2: yeah
1: (laughs) and you uh you uh told the story about how uh the apple trees didn't go so well from the get-go and you lost, I think you yeah. lost some money on it and, and, uh, some, some <laughs> hard earned money on if yeah. I, it was kind of a painful story, but I think people probably <laughs> have. Thanks for bringing it up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it,
3: it's a great learning, uh, great learning tale. I mean, those are the types of things I guess that, uh, you know, like, uh, when you first buy a piece of property once you become a new landowner you're gonna you know hopefully listening to podcasts and reading articles and watching youtube videos and stuff hopefully all of that stuff is going to give you a little bit of a leg up and to help you uh cut down your learning curve but inevitably as a new landowner you're still going to want to cut your own teeth and stuff and you're going to you're going to want to uh earn some experience with a little bit of sweat equity. And I I think I know better than what I heard this guy say or whatever. I'm going to try this. What I knew to be true when I bought a piece of property is like the one thing that I can't do to a farm is I can't buy time.
2: And so whatever
3: the things were like, as much as when I first bought it and closed on it in June, uh, my wife and I were out there looking at the farm and, and taking it in and figuring out how we wanted to set things up for that season and that sort of thing. And then, and, after a week or two of thinking about that, like, oh, where am I going to hang the tree stand or where am I going to do this or that? I slid all that stuff off the table and, and took a step back and I said, I'm going to own this farm for a long time. What I need to be mm. focused on right now is doing the things that are going to take years to develop, yeah. not like planting a food plot, which is what most people do. That When they buy a farm, they want to figure out where am I going to put a food plot? I need to mow and spray and till something up and get my food plot prepped and ready for this fall because that's priority one is – putting a beautiful little food plot in that they can hunt over just like they see on TV. And what I knew was like, I know better than that. You know, what I want to do is plant apple trees because they're going to take like probably at least five years to start fruiting. I mean, it's going to, you know, you want to put in those improvements that are long-term, you know, that the payoff is going to be big, but it's going to take a while to get there. So I was super focused on doing the things that like, we're not going to bear fruit you know, literally and and figuratively for an extended period of time. So I scraped up all of the, you know, mad money or whatever you want to call it when, you know, and this was was earlier on where between a home mortgage and having this farm and all other finance things aside, it was like there wasn't a whole lot of extra money to be had. So I was, like you said, I was scraping and saving every dollar I could save, put aside to like, Order some apple trees, and I went full hog. Like, Am I at least I'm going to do like at least 50 apple trees. And I would never advise somebody to do that. If you're hearing this right now and think, "Oh, you have apple trees," he said he did that. So I'll cut it ahead here. Let me cut right to the end of the story and say, "Don't do that." Don't do that. <laughs> so. Uh anyway, so yeah, I, I bought fifty app trees and, and we uh don't have a single one of those surviving today. And uh-huh. the reason
2: for that
3: is I I jumped way ahead and, and did everything else wrong because I wanted that end result to come you know, together for me as quickly as I could get it there. It's like, well, ultimately, and that's still my goal is to have Mm -hmm. an orchard here between 40 and 50 apple trees. But now I'm doing it one year at a time. I'm adding a few more trees every year. Right. Right. So, and they're doing really well, but, but when I first bought it, I didn't even own a pickup truck. I didn't, Mm -hmm. there was no power on the property. There was no, well, there was, not only was there no water here on the farm, I didn't even have a way to haul water to
1: the farm so yeah like,
3: really <laughs> trees that, like you don't have any way to get water to and their first you know very vulnerable young trees for the first year or two they need they need a lot of bait yeah. and i was incapable of mm-hmm. applying that and so it was like put them in the ground and just basically watch them one at a time die and just
2: you know like, <laughs> lose yeah. yourself over it but it
3: was like what why what was i thinking you know i was impatient I knew what I wanted it to be like in the end, but I did not have a good plan of how I was going to get there with it. So anyway,
2: yeah That's The, a, the in, a, in a nutshell,
3: the orchard's awesome. It's a, it's a great attribute to any hunting farm, and it's you know, for all sorts of outdoor enjoyment. I love, love an apple orchard, fruit orchard, uh, whether it's pears, persimmons, you know, it, just about anything. Um, that bears soft mast or certain types of hard mast, like chestnuts and things like that are fantastic for drawing, holding wildlife. And just, you know, they help a farm appreciate, they do well, but they're very high maintenance and they take a lot of work and a lot of time to establish. So do it in small doses, um, put in a few at a time and spend, I would spend, I would put, always tell people however much you're thinking about spending, I would spend, uh, half as much as you're thinking about spending on trees and then spend that so if you're thinking about spending five hundred dollars on trees spend two hundred fifty dollars on trees instead and spend that other two hundred fifty dollars on caging on fabric some sort of textile to put down to suppress mm, the weeds, good tip. on rock mold yeah, just do it right because it, it does no good to put all those trees out there if you don't protect them and if you don't prevent the weed and the, the grass invasion that's choking them out and to, i mean you'll be so much further ahead Ten years down the road, you'll actually have trees that survived, and they'll be big and they'll be fruiting. Whereas if you don't do it, only a fraction of what you put in the ground is going to make it, and the ones that do will be so stressed they're not producing anything.
0: So
1: yeah, yeah, that's a yeah. that's a that's a really good tip.
0: It's helpful information because you know, like for me, like I'm one of those people who you know I have a dream of being able to own some property one day and be able to do those things. So you know, it's it's cool to hear some of this stuff because you know, like like Chase was saying, you know, you kind of get you have these, all these dreams and these thoughts and, you know, it's no different than a relationship or anything else. You know, you have a lot of dreams and aspirations. And then once you get into it, you, you realize, okay, you know, actually, okay, I've got to, you know, rewind a little bit. I've got to plan this out a little bit better, prepare, you know, and so it kind of the same type of thing when you're, when you're looking into, you know, buying a piece of property and what you're going to do with it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's all well said. Um, one last thing i kind of want to camp out on here before we we move into the specific strategy that that you found to work when it comes to hunting a, a smaller property chase um you kind of started to allude to it there a little bit and i think i remember when I, again when i was out at your place and i've heard it from other other guys like on um i don't know if you've uh listen much to the guys from mississippi state university the deer lab down there just great mm-hmm. information uh dr strickland and and uh dr damaris um, and uh marcus lashley those guys are just you know phenomenal resources i mean just they know everything about deer um but you also mentioned this idea i think the the metaphor here is holes in a bucket and um a lot of times the the lowest hole in the bucket, so where the water is going to always be running out of your bucket, is oftentimes not the need of a food plot, but instead the need of better habitat. Is that is, is that the case, or um, is it so yeah. case by case, uh, you know, you, you, at some places that might be true, other places maybe not? All right, everyone. This is a fantastic fact. We're we're actually recording this right after we got off the phone with uh, Chase. And uh, Mm -hmm. Brandon and I were just talking. This episode is just chock full to the gills with deer hunting, land managing, property managing, whatever you want to call it, fact. I mean, there's just so much Mm. here. And just to really put the cherry on top. We're going to go to our favorite 30-year vet, Mr. Brandon <laughs> Martin, to talk a little bit about how to make your field dressing experience a little bit better.
0: Yeah, so, I mean, you know, any, any time, you know, you get ready to field dress a, a, a deer, especially as a first-hand hunter or someone who hasn't done it very much, it can be a little intimidating. You know, here you are, you have this exciting hunt you're up on the deer, you, you've recovered the deer, you know, all that type of good stuff and, and now, wow, it sets in, okay, I need to get this deer field dressed, want to take care of the meat be responsible on that side of things and one of the toughest things early on when you're you know kind of getting used to field dressing a deer is taking care of that rectum area, the area where the bladder is located um, you're, obviously your goal is to avoid rupturing the, the bladder and having urine go all over the meat and things like that so one tip that I've found really helpful, really two things, so there's a great tool on the market. It's called the butt out tool, um, which works really well. Um, it basically, you know, you would, you would, uh, essentially, uh, you know, put it in the, the rear area of the deer twist, pull out. And many times that will get everything and you can kind of pull it right out and you're good. Um, for times where that doesn't work or you don't have that. One thing that's really helpful to have is a hatchet, um, for that, for that, uh, pelvic bone down there at the bottom, at the base. So what I like to really do is I like to just, and you could, and you could also use a saw, a bone saw or, or a hatchet. If you're able to basically just cut that that pelvic bone out, you know, cut that area out where the rectum and where the bladder is at. If you just cut that boned area out, which is very easy to do. It's, it's, it's not, you know, it's a bone, so you've got to put some work into it, but it's not real thick, anything crazy. If you're able to just simply cut that out, From there what you'll see is you're you're essentially able to just cut around kind of like that lower diaphragm area where everything is just sitting in there and then you can pull it right out makes it super easy um so you know either use that tool or simply just use a hatchet or a bone saw to just cut the 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 bone out of that area would be about a you know maybe a three or four inch you know diameter area that you're just going to cut out and then from there, you can very simply just cut everything out, pull it right out of the very end of the deer, and you're good. Um, and I would definitely encourage you guys, and one thing I like to honestly do is take a look at YouTube videos. You know, there's a million of them out there for how to field dress a deer, and everyone has a different way of doing it. It's really good to see as many different ways as possible to give you an idea of, you know, how you would be most comfortable with it. So definitely recommend you guys checking out those videos. Some, just some helpful stuff out there. And you ultimately, our goal is to get everyone in that, you know, context of, feeling comfortable with the way they do it. We all have our own little nuances with how we do it and want everyone to be comfortable with it. And the more that you can see it from different pros that do it all the time, the more you're going to, you know, be able to just master it yourself. And believe it or not, you get to the point I know I have where I'm kind of the go-to person for my crew for for field dressing deer because I I love to do it so much. And many of you guys and girls may, you know, get to that point too where you actually enjoy it because I honestly view it like every time I do it, man, I'm learning something a little different. I might try something a little different that might – make it more efficient or make it better you know so kind of really cool and interesting and so hope you guys can enjoy that facet of it um, because at the end of the day yes we we love the you know the the you know ability to put deer on the wall and things like that but you know most importantly we want to be responsible with that deer meat so the, the better we can do that the more responsible we can be and of course we were able to take that home to our family which is huge so hope that's helpful to you guys and hopefully you uh, look forward to putting that into practice in this season ahead
1: wow that is a that is a great tip and i will agree with brandon it is the hardest part of field dressing knowing how to mm-hmm. get past that uh, pelvic girdle there and and uh, yes. get the the last little bit of really the most threatening part to all the the hams and and uh you know real good meat there back kind on of those hind quarters but yeah um what a what a great tip there from brandon and make sure if you still don't know exactly what you're doing when you're when you're uh uh gonna be field dressing be watching those videos like brandon mentioned there's there's a ton of great ones out there that's what i did and um it it was a tremendous help to me so thank you brandon for that tip and let's get on to part two here with chase burns
3: very seldom that I've been on a farm that I thought, you know, all this place needs is a food plot. I think if it's just had a food plot, <laughs> yeah. everything else would be perfect. <laughs> mm-hmm. is, no, from a, a uh, herd management standpoint, when you're, your focus is on managing, whether that's white-tailed deer, let's just say it's flock of turkeys or whether it's managing for quail cubbies or whatever it is, uh, you're, like you said, the, the hole-in-the-bucket analogy or metaphor, you know, basically you're, you're raising carrying capacity, trying to get this bucket, this property, to hold as much wildlife or deer or turkey or whatever this particular species possible. That's your carrying capacity, more waters, more wildlife. So if you've got holes all over in your bucket, which every property does, has problems, issues that are right. the reasons that it doesn't hold more wildlife. So, if you look at what is, like, your biggest limiting factor, you're Like, You is it the fact that I have no winter browse? Is it that I have very poor quality bedding habitat? Is it that mm. there's no fawning habitat whatsoever? So, I just can't, you know, or I have nowhere for turkeys to roost or, no. you know, whatever it is, the reason that you are not seeing that particular species, whatever your focus is, is the water and, you know, the habitat itself is the bucket. You're trying to figure out what the lowest.
1: Right. Is. So yeah, when yeah. You're,
3: if your focus is on, let's just say, deer, and you're looking at your property and trying to figure out what is the number one thing that I need to change to plug a hole so that the level can rise until it hits the next hole, and I, I don't think that, at least can't remember having ever been on a property where I thought, yeah, the lowest hole in this property is we need to find a cork to plug the food plot hole.
2: <laughs> like, <laughs> no. Uh-huh. <laughs> but,
3: it is. Food, food plots are great and they can be used uh, to increase the amount of available nutrition and to, you know, hopefully, hopefully uh, subsidize what's already there for native forages and for natural food sources to offer more high quality food for wildlife at a particular time of the year. And, and that's great, they can serve that role. The problem is, and this happens a lot. Like I know that it happens in southern states. I've not spent a lot of time out east where you're at, Brandon. So I don't know, but I would, I would suspect in areas like Vermont or areas that are like heavily timbered. You know, big timber. Yeah. You got yeah. square mile after square mile after square mile with no ag fields and none, n- very little edge. That a lot of what you see in those types of areas is where somebody buys the farm. They might buy, say, they buy 160 acres in solid timber. And they come in with a dozer and an excavator and they hack open a three acre hole and they plant a food plot. Boom, problem solved. We got some food. We're good. From the surrounding area to that food plot, which is great for hunting. They're going to see a lot of deer on one food plot. But the problem is that they didn't really do anything much, you know, anything in fact to increase the available nutrition or to raise the carrying capacity of that property. All they did was draw in more. Dear, and I, I've, I've used this analogy before in a different podcast, so I really hate to like repeat the exact same thing, but it'd be like throwing a Super Bowl party and putting out a bunch of chips on the table and inviting all your friends over and they all come in and in five minutes they gobble up all the chips. There's no food left. So what are they going to
0: yeah. eat? You know, right.
3: either A, all the people are going to leave your party and they're going to be like, hey, dude, you should have bought more food and they leave completely.
0: Or they're going to open up yeah. the <laughs> and they're going
3: to raid your fridge and they're going to eat everything else that you have in your house. We're yeah. Right. In. Right. Yeah. They they can't just leave. So they come in and they aren't just going to eat your food. They're going to devastate your native food sources, all of your your uh, forges and your brows and your your huh. hardwood region, all your young trees that are still within reach of a deer. They're going to browse it and stress it and probably kill a lot of it. And so it's like uh, huh. putting in a food plot there was not going to plug a hole in your habitat. It created a massive problem. So right. what we tell people normally is, like, that's, that's probably going to be about the last hole that you're going to plug in your bucket. If you truly want to improve a piece of land and you want to raise carrying capacity, you're going to focus first on what's already there, focus on the native forages, learn to identify some plant species, learn to identify trees and shrubs, and figure out if what you have is good, if if there's something there that's bad that you could remove, you could cut with a saw and do a little spot spraying and things like that to help eliminate what's bad so that more of what's good can grow and thrive and
2: Mm -hmm. eventually
3: improve the quality of what's already there to where it naturally supports a lot more wildlife. And then you can do things like add more food plots or do those types of things that will supplement them and add a little bit more nutrition and maybe bump up your carrying capacity just a little bit, but that your native stuff is already so robust and so thick Mm. and so um, healthy that it can support a lot of deer and wildlife browsing on
2: music.
1: That's a, that's a really good, it's <laughs> a really good way yeah. to look at it. I never really thought of it that way. You're bringing these deer in and kind of almost like setting them up for failure, yeah. setting yourself up for failure. If you, if you aren't, if you aren't in, ready I for it, short exactly. term instead of you long are, term. Right.
0: Yep. Yep.
3: That's, Like I said before, most of the time when we sell a farm, that's the first thing someone – that's really how our second business, you know, Dogwood Land Management, that's how it began, was selling a property to somebody that uh, was out of the area and they wanted the property turnkey. They wanted it made ready to hunt that season. And it was like, well, A, they didn't know how to do it or didn't know where to begin. And they, you know, had some money to spend, but they didn't know who to hire to do it whatever. I just kind of naturally became the guy that they knew and trusted and had knowledge about this stuff that could do those things. So I started spending some extra time on weekends and here and there and whatever, when I finished in between real estate stuff and was planting food plots and doing all this stuff. And a lot of times it was like, I was just doing what the customer wanted me to do.
2: And Uh they uh wanted
3: a food plot. The customer's always right. So we plant food plot. But after after doing that for a year or two, I became a little bit more, uh, I guess, less timid about voicing. I'm like, Hey, you hired me because you, you understand that I know what I'm doing and you trust me, right? Yeah, sure. Like,
2: <laughs>
3: you trust my advice when I tell you that what you need is not a food plot, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but I saw a lot of deer in it. It's like, well, did you see the deer that you wanted to see? Did you, what did you notice in the rest of your head? Like, well, I didn't see any deer. there. It's like, well, cause there aren't any because they got no reason.
2: Yeah. Right. Then, right. Yeah.
3: You know, we finally, got to a point where I'm like, look, I don't want to just be a food plot business. I honestly, I really would rather not just plant food plots for people. Yeah, you know, and so there's all sorts of other things that the full spectrum of wildlife management. Now we've gotten to a point where the the clients that we have with that business, uh, we love them and, and, you know, and we're glad that they appreciate us and our approach to things because they know that like when they hire dogwood lane management, they're getting a company that, that really understands the whole landscape and wants to manage the whole landscape and that the the forest management and the, the native uh, forages and the, the native grasses and, and everything uh, that wildlife need has to all kind of be part of an ecosystem that you're managing, and you can do it in a way that is going to really benefit your hunting. And, yeah. you know, food plots, sure, those are things that uh, help us maybe with some uh, – encounters you know they they give a deer a reason to be in a certain place on the farm during daylight hours and that sort of thing but truly most of the time they're not necessary i mean it's it's a it is a nice to have it's kind of a cherry on top but mm-hmm. it's not should not be somebody's only uh, management technique or even in the top five probably <laughs> it,
1: yeah it's it should yeah. come
3: after a lot of other analysis of what you got going on
1: yeah that's that's great. That's great advice. Sometimes sometimes the truth hurts too, you know. And we we were uh talking with uh the uh, state um upland biologist for the state of Iowa a few weeks ago and uh, we talked about the truth bomb for a lot of people that uh hey, uh pheasants aren't native to <laughs> not only Iowa but to all of America. Yeah. <laughs> and that's uh you know, that's kind of you know, that can kind of be the case with with If we're not correctly managing our properties, how how um, that should be done. So, no, we appreciate you uh, sharing that truth there. Well, let's um, shift gears here a little bit, and um, uh, this will kind of be our our uh, conversation through to the end here. And let's let's talk about actually. Getting to a point where we're hunting this property and and before I uh, dive right into that, I do kind of want to bring up here and feel free to add to this, uh, Chase or Brandon. Um, I I think I got to imagine, you know, I haven't been in this position yet, maybe someday, but I got to imagine that um, people kind of almost lose sight of what hunting is going to be like along the way. Um, so what I mean by that is, you know, for instance, like putting in your apple trees, you know, you knowing that it's going to take five years before these apple trees are giving me a a place where I could, you know, maybe set up a stand nearby and, and shoot a deer, or, you know, uh, chewing on some apples under an apple tree, you know, but I, I think people have to have a realistic expectation I would I would suspect that they would kind of leading up to that you know even from the first year that you buy the place you know looking at what your property is when you buy it and then I guess maybe knowing that how I hunt it this year probably isn't going to be how I hunt it next year if I'm truly you know putting in the the hours and sweat equity and, and money into, uh, making this, how it would, you know, make it a little bit better each year. And so I, I got to think that, that people, um, who are in this situation, hunters in this situation, I guess I would, I would think that they should be encouraged. Don't, don't, you know, give up on hunting until you have it exactly, uh, perfect mm-hmm. how you want it. And uh, for one thing, and then uh, two, just, you know, understanding that you got to kind of almost grow with with your hunting strategy as your property grows. Would, would you agree with that, Chase?
3: Yeah, I absolutely would. I think um, a lot of times what happens when somebody buys a farm, it takes them a year or two to just kind of get to know the farm and how the deer and how the turkeys are currently using it or where they're going to have success or where they wasted a lot of time. And so they don't, you know, a lot of times they get kind of paralysis and they don't make any big changes because it's like, I don't want to sh- make too many waves here. I don't even know how things are right now. And it's like, I get that. And that's probably, honestly, sure. for a lot of people, that's probably a good practice is like, get to know what's there first, um, figure out how the deer are currently using the property so mm-hmm. that you learn how to hunt the property more effectively. But then really study the aerial and map things out and say, okay, here's what I think the wildlife are doing right now on this farm. Here's what I want them to do
1: and mm-hmm. don't try
3: to force it, but figure out a way to use what's there and what they're currently doing and how, how are you going to capitalize on that activity or you know, this is most of the time. This part of the farm is where they like to bed. Well, okay, stay out of there. <laughs> or sort of like, this is yeah. this is the part of farm where they they generally come out right here at this point. You know, at dusk, I see a lot of deer traffic, and okay, well, let's create a funnel and hang a trail camera Yeah, put stand there. I mean, do do things that yeah improve your odds and uh, maybe concentrate traffic in certain locations, or uh, you know, doze some trails or you know, cut them with a weed whip and a chainsaw, whatever you got and whatever your, your capabilities are to make it so that you can more stealthily access a part of the farm where you need to be hunting without mm-hmm. being detected detected, and get back out of there and, and so forth. And it's like, uh, but even if you do no major changes, like you don't harvest timber or you don't do any like heavy equipment work or just go crazy with a chainsaw, you just kind of buy the farm and just kind of let it do its thing more or less. And you just kind of figure out how to hunt it a little bit smarter. It is still going to change over time. That is the one constant in nature is that everything changes. It just happens in slow motion. So yeah. there's there's a natural progression uh, in the Midwest, you know, in Illinois, what we call it. It's, uh, it is a natural progression from prairie-type open land habitat, upland cover, whatever you want to call it. You know, native, tall, warm-season grasses or short-warm-season grasses to timber, and pretty much every landscape in in the Midwest and Illinois, especially, if it starts out as prairie and you never impact it with fire or don't have it managed in any way, it will eventually convert to timber. It goes through several different stages where it kind of becomes a savanna. It becomes a little shrubby. You know, you get some, the birds deposit seeds out there and you get some choke cherries and mulberries and you get some shrubs and things. And then those start to shade out the grasses and the grass becomes less thick and your weeds and forms, your broadleaf plants take over. And eventually it grows up into trees until it becomes a forest. So mm that might take decades and decades but in each particular site of your you just think well that's not even really happening i don't have open fields that are just growing up in timber in you know a couple of years time it's like look at some opening where there used to be uh, a big stand of oak trees and they got hit with oak will or a big straight line wind came through and it knocked three or four of them down and all of a sudden that big mature timber that was kind of open understory underneath all of a sudden sunlight pours in and that section of timber just grew up thick with pokeweed and tall uh, forbs in the first year and a half. And then by year three or four or five, after you've owned the farm, all of a sudden it's, it's thick with all sorts of young seedlings. And it's like, what used to be a spot that deer really had no reason to spend time except for one week out of the year when they're eating acorns, it's like, now Mm -hmm. there's so much cover. There's so much food right there in that little two acre patch. And it's like that, totally change the landscape and how deer are using that part of the farm and maybe they didn't use the bed there at all but maybe now it's the best bedding spot on the on the whole property So
0: right like yeah you,
3: you're it is always going to change and from season to season so that's where scout comes in that's where you know your your treks out there um during shed season and, and things like that when you're you know noticing it's like oh wow that big tree died guess what like keep your eyes open on that for the next couple of years, that hillside where that giant tree was is going to look totally different five years from now. So,
2: right. you know, yeah. always
3: like log that information in and imagine, you know, you have to be able to, or willing to like, imagine, imagine nature in like a time-lapse photo. Like imagine this, this little tree turning into a giant, you know, elm or packberry or oak tree or whatever it is. And imagine you could watch that happen in like a 30 second clip. What would that look like? Yeah. You know, it's kind of like mind blowing to think about, it. but when I'm managing timber, that's basically what I'm trying to do. Like walking through and looking at what is like knee high below for understory and in, in trees and saying, what do we have here for stock? If I cut a giant hole in the canopy right now and gave all these young trees underneath of me the, you know capacity or give, give them the gift of light so that they right. survive and actually grow to something like what would i have 20 years from now Tw- 25 50 years from now what would it look like and you know you have to be then able to recognize that when you see it in a different part of the timber it's like this this all these big mature trees this cherry this hackberry and like you know or these uh white pines whatever it is you'd say i know what this looked like 25 years ago i can imagine it because i've seen it when it was knee high and below. And if you yeah. create the right conditions, those plants, certain plants favor them or whatever, and they survive and they grow into something. So when you're walking through timber and you're scouting and you're looking for spots to hang a stand or do this or that, be thinking like, this spot isn't very productive right now, but it could be. Or this spot is where I see a ton of deer sign and find all the deer beds when there's a little bit of snow on the ground and that sort of thing. And why is that? Well, it's because there's lots of winter browse here. We got lots of blackberry and you know, all these young uh, shrubs and plants that this is thick cover and it's lots of food. So that's why we're the bedding here. Well, be thinking about, like, what happens the, in nature that created those plants? Like, what gave those plants reason to grow right here on this hillside? And then when you see the conditions change on a farm that you're hunting, understand that, like, things are going to change. And where the deer were spending a lot of time this season might not be quite as much next year. And by three or four years from now, it might not be at all. Right. You have to be adaptable and not just be willing to hunt a farm. Like, I've been hunting this farm for 10 years. I got my stands hung. You know, I go out the first, you know, second weekend or whatever of October. I'm ready for my first sit. I go sit and sit in my favorite stand or whatever. It's like people can get uh, kind of uh, blinders on to those changes that happen just over time and be thinking like, well, you don't just, we don't see as many deer as we used to see. Well, is it because the deer aren't there or is it because you're still hunting the exact same way and the property looks nothing like it
1: did 15 years ago. Right. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. That's a great, that's great. That's a great point. Yeah, definitely. So keep your eyes open. If you're hunting one of these small properties, look for those changes that, um, either you need to make or, um, as Chase said, nature makes for us right Uh, here in the Midwest. We just got blasted by that, uh, a really powerful storm that uh, derecho um, that just swept across uh state of Iowa and um, even into Illinois. And I think uh, Indiana got hit pretty hard as well. You know, th- big events like that, we, we kind of just cut everything up and chop it all up and either throw it on the burn pile or, or maybe s- save the logs for uh, our fireplaces or whatever. And we don't really give it a second thought. But but something's going to happen there in that standard timber um and uh as chase said we kind of have to have that foresight to look at that while we're cutting those trees up and while we're we're assessing the damage and say okay what is this what does this mean for the long term and um you know then adjust your hunting plans accordingly yeah. <laughs> so i think that's that's a that's an excellent tip um something that seems pretty obvious here chase hunting pressure is going to make a big difference on a property of this size um would you agree with that or is it because most most 50 acre properties out there probably aren't managed very much and so a lot of the deer um that are there are kind of transient they kind of just travel through from neighboring farm to neighboring farm and um you know, almost. You know, your property can s- seem almost more like a, a travel corridor mm-hmm. than a place where deer are bedding down, and so therefore pressure might not matter as much. Or, or do you th- do you think that that hunting pressure is a is a big deal on a it, small property? Yeah,
3: it definitely is a much bigger deal on a small property than it is a property with a lot of size to it or, or very size to it. Um, but you're right. Like if it's a river sure. bottom piece of property, let's say you got a 35-acre piece of woodland that is long and skinny and borders a river, and there's miles and miles and miles of connected habitat, timber, and and CRP fields, and cropland, and, you know, all strung up and down this corridor, and you're in an area where you're going to see a lot of unique deer throughout a season. You're going to have a lot of wildlife that are going to use that travel corridor and pass across you it's so much more forgiving sure. for you to be in a tree stand on a property like that and be careless about which way the wind is blowing or how much noise you made getting in or out or whatever, because the deer that was there in the morning is probably going to be a mile away by afternoon. And the deer that started out, uh, you know, overnight, you know, a mile and a half, the other direction is going to be coming right through there at 10 o'clock in the morning. And it's like, you, you know, you you can get away, I guess, with a lot more goof ups.
2: Yeah. On yeah. A farm like sure. that.
3: Then a piece that's, you know, stationary, uh, that's not, it's a little bit off the beaten path. It's maybe got some other good habitat in the area, the general vicinity, but it's not like smack in the middle of a wildlife highway like a river. So, yeah, you know, my, sure. my farm overlooks Big Valley, a uh, big creek that in our county is a major watershed. So there's a fair amount of connected habitat kind of strung throughout, but it's all chopped up by ag fields and so i'm not like right on the river i do have a fair number of what i'd call resident deer um deer that we get if you you know running trail cameras on a a property this size you know you can cover the whole farm really with about two cameras if you put them in the right spot but i usually have at least three or four out on on my piece most of the time and sometimes more if i'm just playing around with a particular setup trying to get a cool video or on camera or something but uh knowing that like a lot of the deer that we get throughout a week's time is going to be the same few deer. And then we've got a handful of them that are bedded somewhere close or that their core area is within a quarter mile or less or whatever. And they pop up frequently, but not daily. And, you know, and so understanding how the the local deer herd kind of works and it's like, okay, if I got a mature deer that I, he only shows up on camera once every week to two weeks, like he probably lives somewhere within a half a mile, um, hopefully closer than that, but there's a good chance that that deer very seldom beds within a few hundred yards of my property line. Yeah. And so it's kind of sure. understanding that, knowing that, and then saying like, if I want a chance at killing that deer, then the one day that that deer is on my farm, I need to be extremely careful, you know, yeah. <laughs> I better do everything I can to not ruin the facade that my property, the whole farm is a sanctuary. I want him to think that there is no threat here. No threat whatsoever. I want I want that deer to pass across my farm and think, Man, this is great habitat. There's plenty to eat here. I never smell people. I don't hear anybody. I've never been shot at. Like I I want him to feel (laughs) so safe when he's on those fifty five acres that like he naturally becomes calmed there and thinks, you know, I should I should visit here more often (laughs) Yeah. So you 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 have to be extremely careful. And like Uh, hunting pressure there's, there's in, in QDM quality deer management, there are basically four cornerstones and the hardest one to manage is, has very little to do with deer. It's hunter management and it's understanding that
2: how,
3: how the decisions that we make as hunters, whether that's what deer we shoot or how many deer we shoot or how we hunt the property, all is going to impact deer herd and our ability to hunt the deer herd. So yeah. uh, the hunting pressure on adjacent properties its a huge deal on small property. You can only control what is within the boundaries of the farm that you have uh, the ability to manage or that you have possession of whatever. So can't, change what neighbors do on their properties. Thankfully, I don't want anybody telling me what I can or can't do on my farm. And I would expect all of my neighbors deserve that same respect. <laughs> Even if I don't agree with some of their decisions about what they do or whatever, it's like, I'm, I'm proud uh, to live in a country where they've got the right to do what they want to do yeah. within the law.
2: Yeah. yeah. So,
3: yeah. you know, I, I think, um, being very, conscious of the decisions that we make about like how we access certain tree stands or where we put a blind, whether we hunt directly over a food plot or whether we sit back off of it 50 or 100 yards and try to hunt the travel corridor. The things that we do that give us an edge and that create much better hunting opportunities on a farm are mostly to do with our presence and our level of activity and the amount of stealth that we use
0: when
3: we're doing anything on the
1: farm yeah yeah it's pressure pressure overall is huge on small properties that's a valuable tip there for for um i imagine several people that that listen to uh this podcast And, and i'm sure many people already understand you know the the importance of managing um hunting pressure but you know We've we've talked about it in several episodes before, and even in the video that we we have uh, coming out to kick off the deer season. A lot of the guys interviewed on there. That's one of the things they mentioned was, you know, don't go to your best spot right away. Make sure that that things are right for that, and and then of course even as as uh, Chase is talking about the kind of decisions that we make when we when we are in the stand, and even when we do have a deer in front of us that we can we can uh, pull the trigger on or or um, let an arrow go on and you you have to again look at the long-term the long-term plan but at the same time too you know something else that brandon and i have said um every time every deer conversation that we've had on the show um you know if if you are new to hunting and you uh, um see a deer and you're like man i really like that deer man i really want that deer you know that's what it, that's that, that's part of coming into your yeah. own as a hunter i think too is is um you know having that that um experience you know and we we don't all just uh start off killing uh big old uh you know five five-year-old uh bucks maybe call young does. <laughs> uh, if, if he tunes into this one he get a kick out of that he he has a knack for it but but um no it's it's true you 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 got to you got to factor all those components together. And, And, um, I think it's, it's, it's magnified on a smaller property. And the,
3: one of the things that I do usually early conversation, I'll have with somebody when I first show up on a farm to like do a a habitat consultation, we start talking about Mm -hmm. what their goals are. And usually they tell me they want to see more deer they want to see bigger deer. They want to, you know, this and that. And we'll talk about what they've already done with the farm or how they're managing it currently, how they're hunting it and all that sort of thing and i'll tell them sometime early in that conversation i'll say the main thing you're going to hear me focus on is making sure that whatever we do and however serious we take this and we we get really get into the minutia of what you can do to manage and improve the quality of hunting on a property don't ever take it so seriously that it quits being fun right yes you, you can literally suck all of the joy out of the hunting experience when you focus so much on the end goal of harvesting a particular deer or setting your property up so that, Mm -hmm. you know, this happens or that happens or that you grow a certain age structure or whatever. It's like, well, you can make it work if you want to like make it not function, but I mean, make it literal work effort. Yeah. that's all because it's like, it's a, what you want to do is, is remember why you're out there and remember the joy that you felt the first time you saw a deer from a tree stand or the first uh, buck that you harvested or the first doe or fawn that your kid harvested when you were sitting next to him. It's like building those memories and Uh uh, recruiting new hunters and getting people so fired up with it and, and ate up with it that they, some of them maybe choose it even as a lifestyle that like this, this is really what my life is all about and uh, enjoying the outdoors and sharing that with family and, and everything that I'm going to do. And most of my life decisions are going to be geared towards making more of those opportunities possible. Or some people are just going to, you know, end up living in the burbs somewhere and having a, a wonderful family and playing soccer tournaments on Saturdays and stuff. And then a couple of days a year, They'll try to get their kids out of town and and go spend some time in the woods somewhere and just dabble in it and that's totally okay not just okay but really yep. awesome. So yeah. as as hunters like yep. a lot of times the people who are as into it I guess you'd say as I am or you know people in my circle or kind of just that live it every day. Some of us uh, and I have at, at one or two points in my life been guilty of it like. It's where it's almost like, man. I mean, if you're just if you're just kind of like the weekend warrior hunter, it's like, why don't you just even hang it up, you know? It's like, yeah, just, it, you, yeah. You, If you're not taking it this seriously, just why are you even doing it, you know? And like, I I feel guilt in my heart as I uh, confess that that like at some point when I was a little bit younger, I had times where I kind of felt that way, I'm like. Man, those guys, they just they don't even sight in their gun ahead of the season. It's like they make all these mistakes. They just show up and they hike out there and, and they wound a deer. Or just, you know, find all these reasons to get angry about it in my mind. But the reality is, like, they don't intend to do that. Their life is busy. They don't live on a farm. They live in town. Right. You know, they, they're they not, it's not convenient or easy or anything about it, but they choose to do it because they yeah. it. it. It excites them enough that they pull yep. themselves out of that to come out here. And to potentially kind of be made a fool of a little bit, humble themselves in the woods and they do it because they still enjoy it enough that it has value to them. And it's like, how can I, how can I possibly, you know, uh, begrudge anybody for that? It's like, right. They, you know, we should pat that person on the back and wrap our arm around them and say, like, how can I help you? Like, you know, I know it's not easy, but it's a lot easier for me than it is for you. So it's
2: like, how how
3: could I make you more successful at this and safer and, you know, and hopefully a little bit more serious or amped up about it that you, you know, work hard enough to get your kids out here more often or to do, you know, whatever it is that like, because hunting as a heritage is dying and that is not a popular statement to make and
2: you know a lot of people are like right. oh you
3: know that's hogwash you know whatever it's really not you know look at the annual license sales in every state that currently offers hunting and you'll notice that the sales of hunting licenses the sales of permits and test stamps and so on is going down and you'll say well but our deer harvest in in minnesota and michigan and illinois and you know you could say well it's staying relatively stable let's Fewer hunters killing more deer is really what it is because we're more proficient, but
1: yeah, there right. Are fewer right. And
3: fewer people every year that are taking to the woods. And there are still a lot of deer hunters, but not nearly as many of them are going raccoon hunting anymore. Not nearly as many are taking time yeah, in August, yeah. September to go shoot squirrels
1: or, right. out, you know,
3: and so all right. of these other game animals that aren't getting properly managed or there's more out there than just deer, even though that makes up the majority of the dollar spent in the United States every year for hunting. It's, There's so much more to it, and there's so many fewer people who are participating in all of those other hunting activities. So we really should be doing everything we can to not just recruit new hunters, but to keep people interested enough and to help them have enough success that they stay at it. I mean, otherwise, you know, two generations from now, we may not have hunting. You know, and people think, oh, it's a God-given right. You know, they're never going to take it away from us. (laughs) They won't have to. Because there won't be anybody left to pass it on, and when there's yeah. only a very right. small portion of people who are still actively participating in it, that's a pretty easy thing to just ban. And yeah. like, eh, you didn't need it because we're not going to be able to vote otherwise.
1: Yeah, right, right. Yeah, great point. Yep, yep. That's an excellent point, man. I should have had you uh, write like the uh, mission statement for First Gen Hunter. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's spot yeah, on. That's that's that's, that's why there, we're too. here to. <laughs> Get it yeah (laughs) that's that's uh that's that's spot on well um as we uh kind of trend towards the end here let's just kind of do maybe like uh some rapid fire here on on a few uh more uh tactic type uh questions here for hunting these small properties um are are you are you um looking to hunt more edge on a small property so you aren't really getting in there and and bugging the deer in those uh, core, even we could call them sanctuary areas? Or are there times of the year where you trend more from that, you know, maybe that that field edge or that staging area on that field edge um, more deeper into the timber and maybe hunt trails or core bedding areas or something like that?
3: Most of the time, I'm going to gravitate towards setting a property. If it's like my size, you know, 55, or if it's a uh-huh. 30 or a 40 or something like that, I'm going to set it up so that I give every dear reason to spend a lot of time in the interior portions of the property, and I'm going to make good access around the periphery, around the outside of that, and I'm going to just kind of hunt the edges. Uh-huh. I'm going to hunt the funnels that come in and out of my property or into and away from my big food uh, plot area or something like uh-huh. that so I'm just gonna hunt the movement that's coming into and out of my property and I'm gonna try to stay out of the middle of it sure I think that's best recipe for success but you know there' there's a couple days in the year where I have one stand that's on a main logging trail that cuts through the middle of my property and I usually only hunt it uh-huh. once or twice in a year but it'll be between the second and sixth of November I'll probably go in there for a sit or two. And yeah. it's because the deer that I'm after are in zombie mode at that point. I mean, they're, they're full on rut and you can about get away with murder with scent control and stuff. And it's just their focus is on the hot dough that's right in front of them that they're following. So, yeah, otherwise, no, I'd, I would stay out of that. And if it's if it's a river corridor farm and it's a long skinny piece or something that sits on the you know, then I'm going to hunt it totally different. And it, the edge is so much less important to me. It's more about... Uh, getting into and out of each stand location without leaving a big long scent trail that the main portion of the deer traffic is going to cross because Mm -hmm. if you laid a scent trail walking into your stand and a lot of the deer traffic crosses your scent trail game over. So, you know, I'm going to focus on, you know, not so much hunting the edge or hunting at a certain spot. I'm just going to focus on where can I get into with relative within bow range or gun range or whatever of a main funnel or corridor without deer crossing my path that I used to come in here yeah yeah sure
0: yeah well Chase what would you say in terms of like for those hunters out there who maybe they're hunting you maybe they have their own you know smaller piece or maybe they have permission to hunt a smaller piece you know 40 to 60 acres or so what would be you know what would typically be a reasonable number of stands that you could place and obviously we know every property is different but what you have a kind of a rule of thumb in terms of how many stands you would place on a like a 50 acre piece of property?
3: Oh man, no! <laughs> uh, no. I, I would say um, I I do a lot of forest management work, and by doing that, I think I can reduce the number of stand locations that are necessary to really cover okay. a lot of the acres. Now, if yeah. you're not doing any forest management work and it's just kind of all the timber pretty much looks the same and there's yes. not a lot of uh, predictable movement through it, gosh, you know, you could have a 40-acre piece that you might you might easily put a dozen or 15 tree stands on and still feel like you got holes that you couldn't – you could put – if you could duplicate yourself 15 times and sit in every stand all at the same time, you'd still have deer. Right.
0: But, yeah, yeah right, yeah, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> on, on my yeah.
3: Part, you know how we've set it up and managed it and blocked the timber and we created walls of brush and things like that with you know uh hinge cutting and felling and just creating certain structure. we've concentrated six deer trails through an area into one and yeah. so it's like like i said with really with three trail cameras i can cover all the main corridors on this piece and catch pretty much any deer that comes and goes off the farm. But mm-hmm.
2: Mm-hmm. we move
3: around and try to figure out beyond that, where is a certain deer most apt to show up, you know, or right. uh, which trail or which piece of timber is he coming from a lot of times, or, you know, where are the groups bedding and things like that. So, yeah, there's more value to, you know, uh, I have stands on my 55 acres that I have never shot at a deer from and probably never will.
0: And mm. I still
3: hunt them occasionally. because yeah. I, I guess I'll call them observation stands. Right. And you you have to, yeah. you know, if you're, uh, once you, maybe that's more for like people who, once you get past your beginning stage of, I'm a new hunter and I want to be successful, meaning, and yeah. you engage successes in, I want to harvest an animal. Yes. Once you're kind of past yeah. that and you move on to the next stage where you're like, I want to learn more about these animals and I want to see you know, where they're coming from or where they're going, or I want to be able to watch them feed. I want to see, you know, how long do they feed before they bed again? Or uh, I think there's a buck that likes to bed in this super thick corner, but I'll never get a shot at him back there, and I can't get that close because the wind is never right. But the only way to find out for certain if he's there is to hunt up here on this ridge where I can see that hillside. I knew that. Yes. <laughs> like,
2: yes. And I'm
3: sitting there watching, waiting for hours to see if a deer gets up and walks across. And people are like, yeah, hey, how did, you, did you go hunt today? Yeah. You doing good? Yeah, I did. Really? What'd you get? <laughs> like, nothing. Nothing. I got a glimpse of a, you know, mature deer that I've been hunting for. And it's like, I thought you said you, you know, it's like, well, that was success.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, All right. That yeah. yeah.
3: After. That's the whole reason I hung that tree stand, you know, four months. Yes. It was like, uh, so, you know, figuring out what is success to you will help you determine like how you're going to hunt a property and also yeah. like how many stands you need and, and all those types of things. So like, you know, the short answer is the more, the better. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's good to have options,
0: but yes. you know, the,
3: the more you can move around, the less predictable you'll be. The less, the less apt the deer are or wildlife are to pattern you and to figure out, okay, there's basically three spots in this farm. This guy always sits and avoid those.
0: (laughs) Yes. Right. Well said. Yeah. 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 yeah,
3: It has to be a guessing game, you know, so that they don't, you pattern them before they pattern you, but.
0: Right. Right. Good stuff.
1: Yeah. That's, that's all really, that's all really valuable information there. Um, uh, yeah, we've had other guys on here, uh, on the show talk about the value of those observation stands and and um you know uh, i think this will be my this will be my seventh deer season maybe um i'm starting to get to that point though where it's like you know how am i how am i gonna put myself in a position where i can just see deer being deer Mm -hmm. and there's there's so much value in that, and each time you you get that glimpse into their world and how they do things, you, you just learn so much. I'll tell you and,
3: what. Another thing that uh, I think really helps somebody grow as a hunter is to go and sit a stand like that. That I have one of those stands. It's like one of my favorite stands to sit in. And like I said, I when I go there, I I hear quail calling. I will see turkeys.
1: Um, mm. I'll
3: see, you know, coyotes and owls. And I mean, it just, it's a, it's such a cool spot to be yeah. out there in the woods that I have other spots that when I go sit in, it's not fun. Like it's intense right. and I'm anxious the entire time yeah. i am sitting there because like, I fully expect I'm going to see a deer and it's probably going to be the deer or one of the deer that I want to shoot. And so like, I, I am worn out after four hours of being in that spot because it's like constant, <laughs> every, you're on high alert the whole time. It's not therapeutic. I would not feel like I'm really sitting there connecting with God or, or yeah. learning much about nature. It's like, I can't see hardly anything. Everything is so thick here. The only time I'm going to see a deer is when he enters in my shooting window and I got to go to full draw immediately. And It's like, those are yeah, right. nerve wracking. We'd, we'd like to think we live for, but growing as a hunter when i go sit in one of those stands where it's like the pressure is off i can yeah. sit here and just enjoy it and and watch and see yeah. what comes up and you know it's uh and just take it in there's a there's a lot of value in that and i think more people should do that
1: yeah. yep fantastic it's a fantastic point you made there for sure well uh one one um Kind of last, I guess. Maybe we can kind of close with this here. I'm going to ask you to put your wildlife biologist cap on here. Um, you you mentioned something about this when I was on your property, um, and and um, I remember, you know, I'm a I'm a high school biology teacher, so I've had you know some of the classwork talking about some of you know just like kind of how animals change their behavior throughout the year but one of the things that you mentioned and then we can also you know bring up and we've talked about it just briefly a, a few minutes ago how the rut changes deer um and we could talk a little bit about weather too i suppose if you want to throw that in um, but also you've mentioned when when i was on your farm the reality of how a deer's diet there's like kind of a big transition that goes on for them um from what their you know their summer feed is like and and even maybe early autumn feed is is like and then as they kind of make that transition over to now their their carbohydrate uh is going to be more of a grain based diet can you can you kind of explain that a little bit and then i want to put a question on that uh with that do these Types of changes; these biological changes really affect how you hunt your smaller property. Um, you know, just based on how the deer are are now acting, as opposed to you know a month yeah. ago. I'll
3: give you the answer first to the question, and then tell you why. Um, I think I think it depends a lot on what the property offers, and it's it sure. is rare. And as a, a marketer of small properties, I guess I would say these are my favorites. And I always try to like bring attention to this. If you're in the market for your first property, you're looking for a 20, 40, 60 acre farm, or something like that. Look for a piece that has a lot of diversity. Don't, you know, if you can, it's hard to find a, something like that in a small package that offers, uh, upland type habitat. It's got topography, you got bottom land stuff, you got the hillsides, you got ridges, you got mature sure. oak timber you got edge you got all you know all of those types of things in a small package it's hard to find but mm-hmm. if you have that then I guess I'm going to say
2: it,
3: how I hunt the property is going to change throughout the season because I'm going to hunt different food sources different bedding areas and so on but if your property is 60 acres of solid you know softwood timber and it's kind of flat and just out of the floodplain and that sort of thing and you know What you see while you're hunting is going to change a lot through the season, but your ability to adapt how you hunt it, probably not so much. It's just you're going to be at the mercy of what the deer are doing with the habitat that you have. So if you have various types of habitat on your property, then it's really uh, good information, useful information for you to know why the deer are using certain parts of the property more at different times of the year. And so, to, back to your, your first part of the question, your, your setup there. Yeah, deer uh, being ruminants, having, you know, multi-chambered stomach, they they can't actually break down plant material. They rely on a colony of bacteria that's in the rumen in one chamber of, you know, of their stomach compartment and, and part of their intestines to break down all of the plant material that they ingest. They're eating all types of, Mm -hmm. through the spring and summer and early fall, they're eating leafy green stuff, ingesting lots of it. They're getting 80 or 90% of their water intake from the plants that they're taking in from their forage. So they're eating it all up and this bacteria is breaking it all down through rapid decomp and then pushing a paste basically through the rest of their intestines and then they absorb everything. And then they get rid of whatever their body couldn't process through that. But when September comes, August, September time frame, and and things get dry and, and it gets cool at night and all the forage plants, you know, broadleaf weeds, whatever you want to call them, forbs, uh, start to dry up and get tough with lignin. They're not as palatable. They're not as digestible. They're tough, right? It's not as attractive mm-hmm. uh, for them to put in their mouth and want to try to digest so they're naturally their diet has to shift because fall has come all the leaves fall off and none of those leafy greens are available anymore what do they eat well they got to eat something and the majority of a deer's diet naturally is going to be woody stemmed browse like the terminal buds and bark of tree uh saplings seedlings, and shrubs,
1: and mm. that's going
3: to make up 80 plus huh. percent of a deer's diet in, in that season. Now, they're also going to gravitate towards heart mass acorns, uh, pecans, chestnuts, anything like that that's out there and available to them, and that would be naturally, like na- native habitat. Well, you know, prior to European settlement, there wasn't a whole lot of crop land or grain planted out there, corn, soybeans, and right. organ, et cetera, but now there is. So, In the fall now their diet will shift away from the leafy greens and more towards the carbohydrates and the woody stem stuff and because if you if you fed a deer corn in the middle of june it'll go right through them and you'll see you know a pile out there of excrement that's just like an absolute mess and just has whole kernels of corn in it that the deer could not digest at all because the colony of bacteria that it has in its gut in the middle of summer, is not capable of breaking down any of that stuff. And likewise, in the middle mm. of winter, if you tried to go out and feed a deer spinach and romaine lettuce, and you know, I don't know, some kind of leafy greens in January, <laughs> it's going to eat it yeah. and it's just going to kale. It's going <laughs> to shoot it right out the other end because it can't digest that. Like the bacteria that it has in its gut at that point is incapable of breaking those types of plants down. And it's so there's a transition. Then, you know, right at where the leafy green stuff starts to disappear and the, the soybeans out in the field drop their leaves and the, all the leaves in the forest canopy start to turn colors and, you know, wither up and get crunchy. When that happens, the deer is, over about a 10-day period, is out browsing, going from eating clover and uh, feeding in your, your brassica plot and eating soybean leaves and eating blackberry, you know, leaves and all this stuff to all of a sudden starts to nibble on some of those terminal buds and starts to pick up a couple of acorns. And it, it happens. It's, it's not an immediate like, Oh, shut off the leafy greens. And from this moment on all I eat right. is this other stuff. It has to introduce those things into its diet so that it can put certain types of bacteria into its rumen and then flush out one colony and recolonize its entire with millions and millions or whatever of Uh, a different colony of bacteria that can break down those new plants. So paying attention to uh, when you're sitting there and stand in first, second, third week of October or whatever, and watching what deer are eating will tell you a lot about what plants are palatable at a certain time and Mm. what it's doing. And if it's, if you start to, you'll see it browsing the clover and stuff on the ground on the trail in one minute. And the next thing you know, it's over here chewing on this dogwood and, and eating the, the tips of this tree or whatever like what is it doing it's it's trying to transition its diet it knows here pretty soon that's all that's going to be left
2: and it can't wait yeah. until
3: that's all that's left to teach its body to eat it so it has to do that so when you're figuring out like where the deer are spending most of their time in a, a landscape throughout the season be paying attention to what types of plants are available in the early season they're going to gravitate towards those places that have high protein, highly palatable uh, forages like ragweed and, and uh, nettles and, you know, certain types of native forbs, broadleaf plants that have a lot to offer for deer. But as you get into late October, November, and then into December, you're going to have a couple of weeks where they're hammering the acorns and then that's all done with and then what did they move to after that, you know. So you, you mm-hmm. always have to be learning enough about what your available food sources are and understanding what the deer's dietary needs are to be able to figure out like yeah. where do I need to be right now so
2: yeah
1: yeah that's a that's a tremendous tip for for uh figuring out how to hunt during these different times of the year because a lot of times we can we can just go off of you know what what seems to make sense oh I'll hunt this field edge and well might not be the time to be doing that yet you know there might not really be deer utilizing that area yet Um, just just i I think you said it really really well you got to be aware of what's around you and you got to be aware of the the biology of the the species you're chasing after Mm -hmm. and um you know i think that just goes goes so far into every aspect of becoming a better hunter is you kind of got to become a better woodsman and you you know you you need to be able to identify the tree that you're sitting in you need to be able to uh Um, identify you know what those forb species are you need to be able to identify where you might have a a tree that's producing some kind of mast crop for the um, deer to be uh, transitioning over to and then obviously um, uh, knowing when the deer are going to be hitting the hitting the field grains as well so well chase there's so much (laughs) so much information in this one this is a this one is uh as chock full with information as your schedule is with uh, work for tomorrow, probably. <laughs> yeah, right. So, so uh, we we really appreciate you coming on and and um, sacrificing uh, some of your your uh, precious time off from work and and um, you know it it's it's time well spent. I will say that in the sense that um, you know I learned. I, I learned a ton from me tonight. Yeah. I'm sure Brandon picked up yeah. a few things. And, uh, you know, most importantly, hopefully a lot of uh, newer hunters out there, just from listening to a, a really experienced guy such as yourself, a guy who lives and breathes um, whitetails, uh, so much information passed on to them as well. So thank you for um, uh, being generous with that. And, hey, um, we got to have you back on the show sometime down the My road. My
2: pleasure. Yep.
3: I, I would and, love to. You know, next time I feel like, we focused an awful lot on whitetail deer, which is, you know, which is the big one that everybody focuses on or, you know, everybody's probably primarily interested in, but there's so much more, uh, to hunting and, you know, wildlife management and just, you know, we could, we could do another one at some point and really just try to avoid talking much about deer at all. <laughs> I think we mm-hmm. right come up right. with a lot <laughs> yeah. to, to dive into. Sure.
1: You know, I appreciate yep. what you guys yep. are doing. Thank
3: you for having me on
1: yeah for sure for sure well brandon you uh you have a good night thank you for coming on the show as well and uh looking forward to uh catching up with you soon and uh thanks again chase and we'll uh look forward to talking to you again down the road
3: all right sounds good thanks guys
1: Well, I learned a whole lot about how to hunt small properties more effectively and manage them in a realistic manner. I hope you did too, especially if that's what your primary hunting is uh, kind of limited to. Speaking of hunting, just tonight, First Gen Hunter on our YouTube channel just released the 2020 deer season kickoff video. This video is a hype video, get you a little pumped up, feeling the urge to get out in the tree stand and feel those uh, cool autumn mornings and and evenings but also there's a lot of great information in there from some of our favorite deer hunting experts that have been on previous episodes of the show and will be on future episodes as well so make sure you head over to the first gen hunter youtube channel and check it out so much great content from chase tonight i really want to give chase a big thank you for coming on the show please check out dogwood land management and chase's land guys real estate pages on facebook you'll find links to those in the show notes on firstgenhunter.com and while you're at firstgenhunter.com make sure you uh, poke around a little bit read some articles check out the youtube channel click the links to go to the social media pages all of that Love interacting with you guys and uh, seeing the the cool things going on with you. Please also head over to TheHuntFishLife.com and check out Brandon and his team. All sorts of really cool stuff going on on that page. A lot of funny memes, too. they got a strong meme game over there. And uh, they have a lot of cool gear as well. So, hey, can't lose. And most importantly, it is the most wonderful time of the year deer season is officially kicking off today people so i can say it and it will have more meaning than it has in any other episode because today you can take care and take someone hunting